Hey friends, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you'll get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to run, but how to win. This is Martin Diego Garcia. And I'm Joe Folt. And you can reach us on Twitter at CMPWRKSHP or on Instagram at The Campaign Workshop. Welcome, and thanks for listening to Episode 8 of How to Win a Campaign. On our last episode, we really went deep on field programs, deep canvassing, and how to effectively run a door-knocking program with Carmen Berkeley, the Chief Strategy Officer of Dancing Hearts Consulting. If you missed that episode, make sure you take a listen and learn all about field tactics from door-to-door to door knocking 101 to door knocking 105, I think. I mean, we really dug in there. It was a great episode. Yeah, I love Carmen and a huge shout out to all the work that she has done and is continuing to do. So in this episode, we are taking a deep dive into money, Uh, how much you need, how to raise it, where to find it. Um, We have a great interview with Amy Kirshner uh, later on with she's going to give us her experience on candidate fundraising. And she has a wealth of knowledge that she was able to share with us with a lot of good uh, tips and tricks for candidates who may be a little wary about asking strangers or their family, really, for the resources they need to run a successful campaign. Yeah. And I mean, Amy has a has a great background. I mean, she has worked at campaigns at all levels and frankly, like was a candidate herself. Yeah. So where should candidates start really figuring out how much they need to raise when they are sort of jumping into a campaign, Joe? So, well, we've talked a lot about the idea of doing a personal assessment. We talk about in that in episode one and episode two with Anise Parker. So check that out if you haven't listened to those episodes already. But from your personal assessment, your personal list of contacts, you really want to come up with by doing some research ahead of time of how much do you think a race like this is going to cost? Is your campaign going to cost $100,000 or $300,000? And then you want to, if it's a $300,000 race, before you run, you want to have a list of people that get you to at least a third of that number. So if you feel like, hey, I've got $100,000 worth of potential donations on paper, this is something you want to test out. You, If, if I was running for office, which I'm never going to. But if I was, the first thing I would do is call up a friend like Martine and I would say, hey, Martine, I'm thinking about running again. I want to make sure that this is legal. Sometimes state laws, it's not. Many laws it is where I can get pledges ahead of time. So I'd want to call up and ask and say, Martine, I'm thinking about running. If I were to run in our community, do you think you'd be willing to give me the max donation? Because I know our schools are a problem. I know you care about that too. And uh, the filing for this office is coming up and I wanna make sure that I really am ready and I'd love to know if you think this is something I should do. What do you think? You know, Joe, we've gone back a long time. I really believe in your core values. I think I could do that max contribution for you. All right. Well, cool. Well, I I haven't announced yet, so I can't take money for you yet. I don't have a bank account. I can't do that until I open up a bank account. But it's good to know that people like you are in my corner. So in this mythical land, I would be able to do that and then put that down as a check mark, right? And and I'd keep going through to make sure that I, one, got my pitch down. Uh, one of my favorite tools is what I call the RAT method, which is reason, amount, and time. And you can hear that I did that in the pitch. One of the things that we often tell our candidates to do is 
to break out their Rolodexes, their Facebooks, their cell phone contacts, right, and make a list of every person they have possibly run into in their entire life and start really writing down numbers for these people all the way from your mom to your best friend in kindergarten. How much do you think they can give? And if they can't give money, can they give time? Or do they live in your district and they can actually vote for you? I think really having a organized contact list is going to be super helpful to go back to what Joe said and, and sort of really see, do you have the support there in terms of money, volunteers, and votes sort of from the jump uh, of your campaign? Joe, what are some sort of fundraising myths that you often hear in the training space from candidates when they start thinking about fundraising? Yeah, I mean, the first is that somehow you put your name on the ballot and a flood of donations come in from people that you don't know. I, I think that there is a lot of great things about online fundraising, but you still need to make phone calls. You still need to go meet people. You still need to have a pretty big network to get the, those fundraising dollars. And it takes money to make money. If you're going to run statewide for U.S. Senate, you're going to need to have money to build that grassroots list and really engage with folks. So that is a, one big myth. The other, uh, you know, big myth is that that somehow like magically time appears, right? You have to make time in your life to do this, and you really have to be dedicated to doing it. Campaigns are a marathon. They are not a sprint. And so this is really about chipping away every single day at making fundraising calls. It's not something that you can do late in the campaign time and really like make up for it. You've got to do it right away, and you've got to start and keep going. Yeah, one of the traps I feel like a lot of candidates sort of fall into is this idea that they need a big name or a celebrity or some well-known person at an event or a or a rally to in order to raise money when very often if you're running for school board or city council even in state legislature right you're not going to have the connections to have a oprah or a right the governor or somebody of a well recognizable name sort of come to your race and do these fundraisers for you and they often take much more time, energy, and, and resources, then you actually raise from these things. And so you having that individual relationship with folks and, and making that direct ask to folks is probably going to be your best bet uh, versus spending the time and spending the resources to get somebody with a recognizable name or stature to come to one of your events for that. Yeah. Don't assume that people, even the people who really know you, will just realize you're running for office and shower you with money. Yep. People don't give because they haven't been asked, and you need to make those asks personal to the donors. And not assume sort of what people can and can't give. I had a colleague um, who ran for office a, a number of times who, who would always tell this story about how his grandmother, when they were getting close to the election, got so mad at him because he never asked her for money. And he just assumed that she wouldn't give because she was on a fixed income and sort of made this assumption that she wouldn't give to him. And she was livid by the end of the race that she, he had not come to her and asked for a donation. So you don't want to sort of talk yourself out of money or leave any money on the table because you have assumptions of what people can and can't give. That's right. I mean, I, I will tell you that in my history of asking people for money, I have only seeing people get offended when you ask them for too little, not when you ask them for too much. Reach for the stars. 
Right. I mean, and all they can do is say no. And but but the other thing to understand is people don't give money all at once. They're going to give money in pieces throughout the campaign at different parts. I don't need to say all of this and you don't either, because Amy talked a lot about all of these fundamentals and she was a great guest. And so, you know, we're excited to hear from a good friend of ours, Amy Kirshner. She has extensive experience working with candidates to raise money. She'll help peel back the onion on fundraising and you won't cry too much um, and hopefully make it sound a little less daunting than it really is. So let's go on and hear what Amy had to say. Okay, and we're back, and we're joined now by Amy Krishner. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. Oh, yeah, I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So uh, Amy founded 8KM Consulting back in 2011. After spending about a decade or so fundraising for candidates, progressive organizations, party committees, and actually during the 2016 election, she was the finance director for Priorities USA Action, which was um, Senator Clinton's PAC, uh, and raised over $175 million for the campaign, which is quite astounding. In addition to that, has fundraised for a variety of campaigns, causes, candidates, uh, and organizations uh, all across the country and up and down the ballot. And so we're really excited to have her expertise and her insight as we dig into probably what is one of the most important pieces of a campaign is to uh, raise some money to make sure you can actually run a successful one. And it often happens to be one of the pieces that most candidates are maybe wary or afraid of. It's one of the things that I would be afraid of <laughs> if I were a candidate. So as you're working with candidates, are there any sort of tips or tricks that when you start to fundraise as candidates should be thinking about that uh, advice you can offer? Yeah, um, I mean, I have so, so much advice. Um, <laughs> so it is okay to be nervous about this and it is okay to be uncomfortable about this. And, you know, I think it's, I, I look back and think of all the times I asked people to just like sit in a chair and do this when it was so clearly something that was just not, you know, a second nature to most people, you know, and I think knowing that going in, that accepting that those are two really okay emotions. Um, but then also accepting that if you want to, do this other big thing, you have to get through this. So I ask all of my candidates that I work with now to sort of shift their thinking, right? The first thing we try to do is we shift the thinking from you are asking people to, to give you something, right? So I, don't, I actually don't refer to, I used to refer to people who give as donors and now I can, now I refer to them as funders or investors, right? Because it is a much more accurate description of what they are. They are investing in this idea that you will be a good representative for whatever it is you're running for. So um, you're not asking them to invest in your, I'd like to buy a new pair of sneakers fund, right? This is, this is not that you're investing. They're investing in the ideas you are carrying forth as your platform and in your ability to, to run a good campaign. And part of doing that is to meet your fundraising requirements. So, so once we sort of shift our thinking that way, I think it helps people make the asks a little bit easier. It does initially feel like you're asking someone for sort of a handout, and that is in no way what this is, right? Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. So for candidates, when we sort of are in a training space and ask folks, right, raise your hand if you'd rather ask a stranger versus asking your friend, I think... <laughs> we get a sort of a mixed response to that. But for folks who are 
maybe wary or scared or seem it awkward um, to be asking their friends and family to invest in their campaign, um, what kind of advice would you give them? So, uh, you know, I think this is really normal, right? I ran for office. Oh, many, I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it's very hidden. It's one of those things I try to keep off of uh, Google. So, no, I uh, when I was living in um, Baltimore, I ran for um, Democratic Central Committee, which is kind of a uh, there's no way to describe it. It's very odd, but it's not traditionally a campaign that people would raise money for. But I'm not exactly your traditional candidate. So for a race like that. So someone said you should fundraise. And I thought that wasn't a bad idea. I probably should. But then when it really came down to having to make a list and call my friends and family, I was like, wow, this is really hard. And it gave me a newfound appreciation for exactly what I'd been asking people I'd worked with before to do. So, but how I got through it was, was really that shift in mindset, right? When I stopped sort of asking, like I was asking for, you know, I'd like this for my birthday gift, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't that. It was talking about why I wanted to do this and what I thought I would bring to the position when I was elected. But, you know, but I think if you asked me whether I'd rather call people I know or I'd rather just like be handed a stack of people, I'd probably pick the stack of people I don't know. And because I feel like I could do a pretty good fundraising pitch, but that's not a realistic way to start funding a campaign. It's not it's not the fastest. It's not the best practice. And you really should go to the people who know you, who already believe in you and and start to get their investment. And um, once you build that base, you can expand out. And so we've talked earlier uh, around messaging and sort of how do you hone in a message, particularly when you're talking to voters, uh, whether you're talking to your base or your persuadable voters, how is a fundraising pitch sort of different than that? Or is it? And what sort of makes a good fundraising pitch? So a couple of things, I think, I think in some ways that can be very similar, right? Especially if you're talking to people and I think it's, you know, I think it's probably important for your listeners to know, depending on what kind of campaign they're running, they may only be calling people that are directly impacted by whether or not they're elected. But often they might be calling people who aren't in any way impacted by whether or not they're elected. So I think the conversations are a little bit different, right? If you're talking to people who are in your in your district or you know in your state, your message is somewhat similar, right? You have to remember you're often you're talking to people who write checks, but also can vote for you. And I think that's really important. But when you're talking to people outside of your district, outside of your state, who may or may not sometimes be able to pick your state off a map, which happens sometimes, um, you know, I think it's trying to figure out, you know, there was a reason, there's a reason someone suggested that you call this person, you may know them personally, um, or you may not. And so what was that reason? And so I think it's talking directly to you know, sort of their needs, right? We're in a unique time, right? And I actually think this is a great time to be fundraising, truthfully, because uh, to a previous point, there there are a lot of people out there wondering what they can do, right? There is they there is this feeling that they have to do something, and so what we're seeing is a pretty big uptick in the number of people who are becoming investors in these campaigns. But, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of doing some pretty simple research on someone to figure out a little bit about their background. You know, if they have a giving history, does it follow some kind of pattern? Do they give a lot? You know, they give only to women. Do they give, you know, heavily to women? That gives you kind of a glimpse into maybe something, you know, something that they care passionately about or, you know, are they 
you know, do they have a lot of environmental giving or, you know, it can give you sort of some, some tips into what are some points you want to stress with them. My, also my advice is don't tell people just what you think they want to hear. You have to be genuine. Funders are really smart and they can tell when you're not being genuine. So I think, you know, don't tell them something that's not true. They'll see right through it. And, and so tell them, you know, what it is you actually do stand for and what you'll, you know, what you'll do when you're elected. Right, right, right. For folks who are just sort of starting out and have no idea where to even find that information, I mean, as they're researching donors or potential givers, where would you find that? Sure. Well, the good news is the internet exists in a way that it didn't when I was <laughs> first starting out to do this. So the ability to, to do some pretty simple Googling um, is available. You know, there are a couple of websites. There's um, Open Secrets, right? They, they have a pretty good database that you can search through. You can obviously search through the FEC, which is um, the, you know, the official site, I find it a bit arduous, but you can do it if you want to. And then uh, I, you know, I like political money line. It's a paid subscription, but if you're doing a lot of this and you're doing a pretty robust um, search, I find it to be probably the most user-friendly, um, but you can get your information from, from free sites as well. It's not going to be a huge hindrance unless you're, you know, trying to raise 20 to $25 million, then maybe go ahead and splurge on the, on the subscription to save yourself some time. I would also, from a practitioner side of things, who works with a lot of candidates, um, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good here. Um, I, I have a lot of, because there is so much information available, I have perhaps a few um, candidates who use it as a stall tactic to actually having to make fundraising calls. The internet can provide an endless amount of information if you dig long enough. It's just a matter of whether or not you want to make any calls that day or not. So, so I would say, you know, get get a pretty good baseline so you have a sense of like what it is they do for a living or what they're involved in, you know. But I I do think knowing you know what their third grade dog's name was might be a bit weird, and I can't <laughs> imagine how it would come up in a conversation. So, um, yeah, so it might be a little too much. So shifting gears here to sort of what a fundraising team, so say a candidate has the resources to to build a team, they have a campaign manager, they're bringing on uh, a fundraising team. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what they should be looking for in candidates that they, they're hiring and sort of the difference between like a smaller race and, and a, like a much larger race? So I've, you know, I've been involved in races of all sizes. And so I've been the sole finance person on a longer shot congressional. And I've been one of a, you know, 18 member fundraising team on a much larger Senate race or governor's race. So they really do vary. I think, um, you know, the things that you, you want out of your finance team are, you know, sort of a passion for what you're doing, right? This is, um, oftentimes this is sort of like, you know, the least exciting part of the campaign. Most people assume it's going to be the most important part because all they see are those very frontward facing galas and the big parties. And, um, and those come much later and <laughs> are actually really very much fun for the fundraisers because they're usually working. But, you know, they're going to be grinding out doing a lot of donor research. Um, they're going to be, you know, following up on pledges and you know, and then following up again, when those pledges don't come in, they're going to be doing a fair amount of accounting sometimes, you know, so I think what you're looking for is someone who has enthusiasm for what you're doing, who's really bought into, you know, making the most of the experience they're getting, growing and learning. Um, so I actually don't 
you know, I don't dissuade folks from from hiring people who maybe on paper don't check every single qualification box. Um, I think there's something to be said for having to hustle a little bit and try to figure some things out as you go. And then the number one thing that all fundraisers have to be is detail oriented. And I can't stress that enough. It is a, it is a job that is, you know, won or lost in the details. So keeping track of everything and, uh, you know, you, they're going to be interfacing with people that are going to fund your campaign. And so making sure that the thank you notes have names spelled correctly and are free of typos, you know, all of those things are incredibly important because they reflect upon you and on your campaign. So I would say those, those are the questions I ask when I'm talking to people about working on campaigns and I do, you know, I encourage writing samples, right? It's sort of a very old school thing that not a lot of people do anymore, but because they're going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of email back and forth or thank you notes and things like that. Um, You do want to see, you know, sort of that component and where you start from at least. As we talk about what you should be paying your fundraisers, I want to sort of touch on two things, two pieces here. The difference between sort of hiring your campaign team, right, and your sort of hiring of staffer for you versus hiring a consultant. Can you talk a little bit if there's like a, a range or what candidates should be considering or potential uh, fundraisers as they're looking to be hired onto campaigns should be considering when they're um, talking about salary? And on the flip side, sort of, are there different ways you can pay or hire a professional fundraiser or a fundraising consultant? So it's a pretty simple question with not a simple answer. So um, so I think, uh, you know, with, with regard to the fact that this could cause a riot among my fellow consultants, um, I think my advice would be if and when you have the opportunity to hire someone who will be a full-time staff person, you should do that in lieu of a fundraising consultant. And I say that because I think, you know, consultants uh, bring a ton of value and a ton of experience. But if you have the opportunity to hire somebody who every day wakes up and knows that their one job that they have to do that day is to move your own priorities forward, that's really helpful, right? Um, You're not competing with two, three, four, five, six clients. You're the priority every day. So if you have that opportunity, even if it's somebody who's a little greener, I'd say go for it. Finding fundraising talent can be really tough sometimes. So, um, you know, so that may not always be an option and not all consultants are, you know, are bad. Obviously, I don't think so. So if I did, that would be really awkward or everyone. But I do think that's a that's a balance you have to really think about. You know, so paying fundraising staff, um, you know, this is the this is the piece where I think it's there are two places where, you know, it, it behooves you to spend money, right? Your campaign manager, the person who's going to pull this whole thing together, who's going to have a big job managing the entire team and the operation. And most of the time you, even though you may not realize you're, you need to be managed, but the finance person, they're usually one of the first people on the ground. And if they're not, they should be, um, you can't do much without money. So they should be there. So, uh, you know, it's hard because these, these races are, you know, the, the amount of money being raised in these races is so much more robust than it used to be. So I used to have a pretty good sense of ratio, and now that is all out the window. Um, but you know what? It's not unreasonable. I'll give some sort of scale here. It's really not unreasonable on a top-tier congressional race where, you know, you're going to need to raise, you know, $8 million to be paying your 
uh, finance director, you know, about in the neighborhood of like eight to $10,000 a month. It feels like a lot of money, but when you overall, you know, look at the overall budget and the amount of money they're, they're responsible for, that's pretty in scale. Um, obviously, if you're going to have to raise that amount of money, they're going to be managing a larger team. So, you know, so the work is, is uh, much more robust. Smaller scale races, obviously, with lower budgets, you will get less experience, but, but obviously they come with a little bit of a lower price tag. And then, you know, large statewide races, just they, they range all over the place. So, uh, you know, so you'll probably go upwards of 10, 10 to 15 for a finance director on a big statewide um, and presidentials, I can't even begin to guess. So, <laughs> I don't right, even right, know. Right. Um, more money than we should talk about. So, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and then consultants really also range across the board. Um, the biggest question I get asked is, um, do I do a retainer or do I do a percentage? So, uh, I know people who do both, and I have done. I've never done a straight percentage. It's just not, I, I have overhead. I have things that I have to do every day. So I've never done that. I've done a lower retainer with a, with a percentage built in on top of that, but I typically keep those um, reserved for sort of the more institutional organizations that have a, have a pretty good infrastructure. For all candidates, I only do a flat fee um, retainer. And I do that just because I know the amount of time I'm setting aside to do this every day. I know exactly where this fits in with our time budget, with our staff budget, with every piece of it. And over the last few years, I've learned that that my work only gets us three quarters of the way to where we need to. The last quarter of the way we need where we need to get to is entirely dependent on the candidate. And I've had candidates who do all the work and we get there and everything's great. And I've had candidates who don't do the work and we sort of don't get there and uh, due to no no fault of my own. So um, so I do that sort of as a, you know, just sort of as a this is the standard and this is how we do it. Um, and, you know, I think most consultants, by and large, uh, are really good actors and take on work that they like and take on work that they are able to actually do. So, you know, I think most of my clients would probably say that they um, got far more payout than the investment that they made. Um, And that's a good feeling, right? That's exactly how I would like every client to walk away from the relationship or (laughs) continue the relationship. In fact, most more often, you know, that's the goal, right? And so as candidates are, are starting to figure out sort of what is this mysterious number that I need to raise, where would you point them to figuring out sort of how much money they would actually need to raise to be even competitive in a campaign? Right. So, you know, so I think ideally part of your campaign team that you're putting together are, you know, would be your campaign manager, but also your consulting team. So the people who are going to do, if you're going to do media of any kind, um, your media consultant, your digital consultant, if you have one, or some sort of digital infrastructure, right? The world doesn't just and doesn't just exist without the internet these days. Your direct mail consultant, um, you know, all of the tools where you think you're going to need to win, um, they should all really be able to provide um, sort of some baseline estimates for if this is your win number. Here's how you need to communicate with them. It, you know, it's all it's all sort of a big guess at the beginning, right? You don't really know what your opponent's going to do. You don't really know what outside force is going to play into this. So campaign budgets can swing pretty widely. 
but they should give you a pretty good baseline budget. And, you know, I mean, I think all campaigns, uh, you know, have a high and a low budget. And, you know, the, the gap between those two is usually pretty wide, which I find to be interesting. But, but it gives you a sense of what you're going to need to raise. I would say, you know, do a high budget and a low budget so that you know what your very low baseline is, you know, where you have to work from. Yeah, we have to say the budget is sort of like your roadmap, right? Whether it's your low budget or your high budget, if you're sort of scraping by on the like minimum you need to run this campaign, you know where your money's going. Or if you get an influx of money, you also know where your money can go. And the same way you need like you need a fundraising plan, right? To get to both of those budgets. What should go into a fundraising plan as candidates are starting to create them? So the place I like to start is um, I, you know, I sort of start every plan by it's all an Excel spreadsheet. That's the, that's my one piece of advice. Never do a fundraising plan in Word. I don't know why people would ever do that. Um, so you put it in Excel so it can sum, it, sum itself. Um, but I do the bucket. So how are you going to raise your money? How, you know, how much do you think you need to raise from call time, which is just straight asking people for money? Are you going to do events? Well, what kind of events are you going to do? And then you start mapping that out. Are you going to do fundraising direct mail, um, which is different than voter contact mail, right? And what does your digital fundraising look like? Does it is it robust? Is it not? Um, digital fundraising is a really tough piece, right? So you know, under the events category, I really drill down into like who's going to host events for me, how much do I think they can realistically raise, and you do targeting that way. The one thing I say about fundraising plans is if the plan you wrote at the beginning is the plan you ended with at the end, you did something really wrong. So it, it just doesn't have, means you didn't really update it very well. So, um, you know, how you assume the money is going to come in is never entirely the case. Um, there will be money you didn't see coming that will show up. There'll be someone you were a hundred percent sure would do this event and it would hit goal and they completely whiff on it and it just doesn't get there. But that's the point of the plan, because I think otherwise, when those kinds of things happen, you're not able to make those adjustments because you can't look at a document to see how it all is working together. And then, you know, the frustrating part of fundraising for anyone, including fundraisers, is the completely unpredicted money that just rolls in at the end for no good reason. And you don't know why everybody just waited, but they did. And, um, you know, it's a really hard thing. Managers don't like it. Candidates don't like it. Fundraisers really don't like it because it's harder to spend. You have to sort of take a take a flyer and assume that that money is going to come. It always does. I don't know why. It just does. Um, so probably these artificial deadlines. But, you know, but you build those into your plan so that you aren't entirely you know, surprised by it. And then the worst thing in the world, I think, is you know, at the end of a campaign, you didn't plan for that. You lose by you know, less than a percentage point of, and you have $100,000 in the bank. You know, what could you have done with that? You know, if you just planned for it, um, it's the worst feeling in the world. So, As you talk about sort of planning for these deadlines, planning for quarters, et cetera, can you talk a little bit about at what points in the campaign you're, you should be expecting a good bit of money versus not? When I was doing trainings, what we would tell campaigns is they should expect 50% of their money to come in at the last like quarter two quarter and a half of the campaign. Um, I think it's gotten a little bit better than that, but you know, it's definitely not too far off of that ratio. Um, that can make budgeting really difficult. Um, but it's, you know, it's a pretty good time. Your campaign should be at full swing, at full staff, at full speed. That last, you know, that last quarter, it's when you have your, all of your field people and it's when you have, you know, 
every person who's ever gonna say that they worked on your campaign will be working there in the last quarter. So um, so it'll be your biggest staff. You know, it all sort of makes sense and it does work together. The other thing too that I just tell people is, you know, really think about like how people live their lives, right? Um, I think one of the things that campaign staff and candidates sort of forget because we're immersed in it all day is that this is all we think about and this is all that we do. You know, look, spring break is a real thing for people. They go away with their families. August is a real thing for people. I don't know where every rich person in the country goes, but they go somewhere in August without phones. So I know that's that's all I've deciphered in the last 15 years. So, um, you know, so you should plan for those things rather than just be surprised and annoyed by it. So, you know, I think uh, I think if you acknowledge sort of the realities, um, you know, the other the other piece that I would say is like, you know, be creative and think through how you're doing things. Uh, if you are in a place where football is a really big thing, don't call on Sundays during the game. Right. Don't do that. It's a bad idea. But then likewise, I am a big fan of thinking through like, did your did your town just get a big snowstorm that's keeping everyone home? What a great opportunity to call them. They can't go anywhere. <laughs> so, um, so I think being creative and trying to be nimble, um, you know, they're snowed in. They don't have anything to do anyway. They might as well chat with you. So, so I think, you know, trying to be nimble and be thoughtful about how people actually live their lives will serve you well. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for joining us um, and for your insights on fundraising. You definitely made it a little bit less scary for me and hopefully for some of the uh, candidates who are potentially uh, jumping into a race. Oh, well, good. Good. I was uh, very glad to do it. So I hope I hope everyone has great success raising lots of money. <laughs> I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Well, if you have any questions about what we did or didn't cover in this episode, please feel free to reach out to us um, by email or social media. Uh, and we'll definitely put some of our uh, blog articles in the episode description for you to check out. Uh, we'll be right back. And we're back. And a huge thank you to Amy Krishner for chatting with us about all things fundraising. I know that I learned a ton. Um, I really appreciated her point that while fundraising doesn't come naturally to most people, and that's totally okay, right? You can really shift your thinking to hopefully make it feel a little less uncomfortable. So really think about call time as giving people the chance to invest in a future that they really believe in. Totally. It's always a good idea to start fundraising by reaching out to people who already believe in you. Asking family and friends for money may feel weird at first, but these are the people who know you and are rooting for you. This is the fastest and most realistic way to start funding for your campaign. Turn to the people you know first and expand from there. And just like everything else, right, you want to make sure that you have a written plan as well, right? You want to make sure that you have goals and benchmarks that you want to meet throughout the course of your campaign so that you can measure that progress and really stay organized. Um, have a clear sense of who you can turn to and how much you can actually realistically raise. Um, we often tell people to have a, an Excel spreadsheet or some way of tracking how are you going to raise this money and who is it going to come from? Is it come from family and friends? Are you going to be doing a bunch of events where you're raising money? Is it digital mail? Is it online giving, right? How can you raise through each tactic and each person listed and really keep track of that? And know that these are going to change, right? Things are going to happen. COVID-19 happened, right? And we really had to adjust our plans in order to uh, make sure that we are still raising the resources that we need to communicate with voters, but also that we're sort of adjusting to the current landscape. 
Yeah, and when you hire, you know, a team, you want to make sure that they're working with you and you trust them and they're giving you advice that you're going to listen to. When you're doing call time, you want to make sure that you're personalizing that fundraising pitch and you're doing your research before you talk to folks. Remember, the people that you're really calling are friends and family or friends of friends who know you, not strangers. It might be easier to call strangers. I have candidates who ask me for a list of strangers all the time, but you won't raise money from them. You got to start with the people that you know. So you want to think about a few things about the people that you're calling. How often do they give? What kind of campaigns and causes do they usually donate to? Above all else, you got to be yourself. You have to be genuine when you're talking to people. Don't just tell someone what they want to hear. Be honest about what what and why you want their support for. Really understand and know how you're going to help the community and be able to say that and show that on your call. Remember, reason, amount, and time. The reason that you're asking people for money, the amount you're asking for, and when you need the check by. Absolutely. Because you really want to think about, right, like the people that you know, your friends, your family, your networks, right, they already know you. And it's the time that it's going to take you to convince them to give you resources for your campaign is going to be much less than people that you don't know or large organizations, organizations that endorse candidates or give candidates money. You're going to have to prove a much higher level of viability before they're going to really consider investing in your campaign. So when you start, you're really going to start with the people that you know, your own Rolodex, your own contact list, and then really build out from there understanding that the people that you don't know or that you need to have a higher standard of viability is going to take a little bit more time. The interview that we did with Amy is actually really fantastic, and she went into a lot of this. And so the full interview is actually going to be available in the feed. So if you learned a ton and want to learn more, feel free to check that out as well. Yeah, and one of the things that Martine said earlier was with COVID-19, fundraising has changed a bit. If you want to know more about campaigning in and around a natural disaster, check out that episode as well that's in the feed. But you need to really think about your budget and your organization during this time and make sure you're really connecting with your funders yeah. Fundraising is always uh, an interesting piece if your candidate either really loves it or really hates it. And as a call time manager or a fundraiser on a campaign, I have heard a number of creative ways in which to get candidates to do call time. Um, there was one story about a candidate who would find different ways to talk to anybody who was in the campaign office in any kind of way. And to the point where the, the fundraiser actually had to put signs on the back of people's chairs to say, do not talk to me or I will get fired <laughs> to make sure that the candidate went straight to call time. But think of creative ways in which uh, it makes it easier and more comfortable for you to do call time. Snack incentives, right? Every for every dollar that the you know candidate raises or every call that they make successfully, they get a snack. Your candidate might gain another 15 pounds, but they might be happy by getting the snacks that they need. You just have to think of what that motivation is. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions about fundraising, feel free to reach out to us through email or social. Coming up on our next episode, we'll be talking with Colin Rojero about the world of paid communications and how to build engaging creative to get your message out there. Until next time, this is Joe Fold. And this is Martin Diego Garcia, breaking down how to win a campaign. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Hope Rohrbach, 
Daniel Lamb, Heidi Job, and Elena Veach. Music by Mike Pinto. Sound editing by Junto Media. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.